Right, welcome to another episode of the 7L Off Piste podcast with me, Nigel Klukas, once again, joined by Oi. brand owner, Jamie Lundy. How are you doing, mate? You okay? Hi guys. Yeah, I'm not bad, thank you. Wonderful. And we've got a very special guest in the shop, in the studio with us today, Professor Andrew Groves, who we will introduce to you all in just a second. But first of all, let's start with uh, with you, Jamie, and, and how you came to be aware of, uh, of Professor Andrew Groves. I think the first time I heard about um, Andrew was probably about four years ago. Okay. Maybe five years ago. And um, that was through an old business partner of mine who wanted to send a jacket off um, to an archive somewhere. And I was like, um, why? Yeah. Because <laughs> I'd never heard of them. I mean, I've only been in the fashion industry four or five years. Right. In what we're doing. You know, obviously people know my story. I was an engineer before, et cetera, et cetera. So when I first started this, I was still getting into who everybody was and whatever, you know, the whole fashion cycle of things. And he wanted to send a jacket to an archive somewhere. And I was like, why? And it was like, well, it's a, it's called the Westminster Menswear Archive and, and the archive coats. And I just thought, right, for the purpose of what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, not knowing, you know, there was Massimo, uh, Massimo Osti's archive somewhere in Italy and blah, blah, blah. So, and then obviously like, as I've got into the brand and started designing and taking inspiration from the past, uh, whether, whether it be um, Osti himself or you know other, other brands and CP, Stone Island, who, whoever, I, I was like, oh, right. I started to get the reason why this menswear archive existed. And uh, I'd contacted Andrew. Uh, I can't really remember the first contact that we'd had, but uh, we've, to- we've talked over the, the last, say, four years, you know, mm-hmm. via text, uh, via messages, uh, we'd sent a jacket down there. Um, and then obviously, the more you get into the fashion world, um, I started doing a bit more research about him. Then found out that he'd worked with Alexander McQueen, Lee McQueen, and and followed sort of that journey through there, watched the film that had come out and, and saw him on that and thought, wow, this guy's really <clears throat> an influential person in the fashion industry. Yeah. And, you know, he wears CP, which was, I thought, great. And then um, I think did I think he went to the CP. Did you go to the CP company? event last year was it the uh, birthday of cp 50th something i can't remember yeah it was their 50th anniversary yeah, so 50th. we helped them with the exhibition i guess yeah that was it yeah, yeah. and so i so, saw him then as well and then so i started doing more research and then and really realized that you know we've been um doing the, the westminster uh, university for like since 2001 and you know um a teacher of fashion and training students and I thought oh wow this you know St Martin's and right well listen you've heard his voice a little bit welcome to the podcast Professor Andrew Groves how are you doing I'm all right how are you I'm very very good honestly it is a pleasure to have you here at the shop in Old Edge with us today so thank you for giving us your time and coming down honestly and you can tell how excited Jamie is as well so where do we start I mean we do need to talk about the WMA which is the Westminster Menswear Archive but um you know Let's talk about your, your life to begin with and how you got involved in fashion and stuff like that, if you don't mind. How long we've got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always wanted to work in the fashion industry because I was really into clothes. And I, I, I always say I like clothes because I... A big influence in a weird way is Mr. Ben. That idea of what you wore meant you could do different things or you became different people. Clothes were transformative. Yeah. Um, and so I was going to go and study fashion, yeah. looking at St. Martin's in the middle 80s. And actually I decided I didn't want to do that, I wanted to do theatre, because I thought if I go to do fashion, it would just be teaching me to do boring stuff. Um, so ca- how can I learn to 
look at historical garments and use historical garments as a reference to create modern things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how my journey started. And it's, it's continued. And I think my, most people, it's continued because of various people I've bumped into that I've either worked with or I've seen out. Or that's yep. how I ended up working for McQueen, not because I wanted to work for him. Yeah. But as, because as he was someone I bumped into. As, right. a ki- as a child as well, were you always interested in like clothing and the fashion side of stuff? Yeah, and I don't think it's necessarily fashion because I yep. would say there's this thing about most of the time we talk about fashion, we mean clothing and yep. what's the difference between clothing and fashion. And I think that's one thing we explore in the archive. Mm, that's true. That it isn't just fashion. Mm. Um, and actually some of the things that quite a lot of fashion is actually about how you wear things and put things together. It's not because someone's told you they're fashionable garments. Yeah. And I think there's lots of brands that can be both fashionable and not fashionable. Yeah. And I'm really interested in that space. So you can look at Berghaus, you can look at Burberry, Burberry can be all sorts of things, and one of those is fashionable. Um, and so kind of that's my background. Is I ended up then working, after after doing that, working in the theatre, but then I wasn't actually working on the clothes, I was working on the scenery. Right. But I was interested in that world about clothes could transform you, they were performative, uh-huh. so they could be about performance, but also performative. Um, and, you know, the great thing about clothes is you wear something different every day. And with doing that, you can change who you are in yeah, terms of how yeah. you present yourself. Over the last five years, I've noticed that, you know, with our customers, it creates a real identity for them. And it's great for self-esteem and, you know, the ego and, and everything else and being able to change the way you look every day and or feel comfortable and throw a hoodie on, you know, but you, you're part of a brand and a part of a community. I've noticed that it's really, really important to people. One of the things that you said to me earlier on when we, when we all first got together in here was that you wanted to talk to uh, Professor Andrew Groves about where fashion was, where it is now, and get his thoughts on, on, on that kind of thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I'd like to delve into is that you know, what's your opinion on how it's changed over the years? Because, uh, and on other podcasts, I was, um, I told the guys that I used to work with, like, Mario Testino. I used to model back in right. the day when I was 16, 17. So I was around that time with, like, 95, 96, when it was the boom of the supermodels, the boom of the designers, all the catwalk shows, you know, and the glitz and glam of it all, which, to be fair, I still look back on it now and think they were amazing days. You know, at the time when you're doing them, you just, you don't. And the photographers, you know, you're going back to like film photography instead of digital. Um, you know, photographers those days were so so much more rarer uh, and cost a lot more money because they were you know, world-renowned. And then these days, everybody's a photographer. It's sort of diluted photography a lot. I think, you know, in the sense of fashion and fast fashion, I think fashion, fast fashion these days has diluted a lot of like what we try and achieve as 7L with the quality of the garments and trying to fit in there and trying to convince customers that buying better it is better because it lasts longer, they fit better. There's so much more work that goes into what we do, you know, as a brand to make yeah. sure that things fit right, they last a long time, they wash right, than fast fashion. And I just, from Andrew's point of view, it was more like, because he's very experienced in this and it's like from the world of the 90s, to today, how have you seen fashion change? I, sp- I suppose the biggest change, and this is one of the reasons I started the archive, is that the disconnect between the garment and the student, or the garment and the customer, and the, just the creation of imagery. So, you know, we used to be able to go to shops, whether that was Jones in the King's Road or wherever, uh, and actually see those designers like Gautier, um, Galliano McQueen, Body Map, whatever. And then suddenly that stopped and the product you'd be seeing on the runway, you'd only ever see on the runway, so it was only imagery you were consuming. 
and you'd never see the garments. And so what we ended up having, you know, when you're teaching, and I think you're always seeing the problems that are coming maybe five years ahead of everyone else, is seeing that everyone was, student levels, was just creating imagery. Mm. So as long as it made a great image that can be consumed on Facebook, on Instagram, it didn't matter what that garment felt like, the quality of the material, how it was cut, how it fitted, because actually it was just a great image. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, the more likes that image got, the better it somehow meant that thing was. Yeah. Which led me to think, oh, that's because there's a lack of access. Because I'd been spending years saying, why don't you go down to Dove Street Market or go down here and go and look at these clothes and see how these things are made and why that quality is important and makes important. A, they weren't doing that because that took time and actually looking on your phone's a lot quicker. So it wasn't on your phone, they wouldn't uh -huh, do it. Yeah. Um, but also the things in the shops weren't the actual things that you might be wanting them to look at. And that kind of made me, well, actually, the way to change the future is to get them to look at the past, even if that meant the past from five seasons ago mm -hmm. or 50 years ago. Yep. And I think getting them to realise, because they're all really, really worried about sustainability in the future, is actually think, well, the solutions are in the past because it's looking at material, isn't it? It's understanding what the material properties of cotton, of wool, what those things are, how people have used those in the past, yep. how they can inform the future things you can create and how you can create value that's not just about an image but is, goes a long way past that image. You can create a great image, but mm. actually behind that image is a great product. Well, my vision with the brand has always been quality over quantity and all that sort of good stuff, naturally, not, not, not because it was the, the new fashionable thing of sustainability. I mean, sustainability, I think, anyway, should come inherently with whatever you're doing and you should be responsible within a company or whatever you're doing to not impact on people or the environment. I think that's a, a given. But I wouldn't say, well, was it nice to see? It probably was nice to see some of these the fast fashion brands going bust. And, and it sort of showed for me that people are starting to change the way they think about the future. Well, I suppose for me, the change is, I think the emotional value of a garment, of an object, which yeah. used to be that you were aware what cash is, you got paid in cash, you had a Saturday job, you knew what it meant to save up for something that had a meaning. Yeah. So you wouldn't get rid of that thing because it's taken you a lot of time to buy it and, and work for it. And I think that's changed. And so it's trying to get students to understand how do you create garments that have value, that is an emotional value, which means you're not going to get rid of things. Yeah. Um, and you, you can do that through design, can't you? You can do it you know one of the things um paul harvey talks about this is that by working with archetypes of pre-existing garments you've already got a relationship with that type of garment a duffel coat a parka yeah without even knowing it, you're having an emotional response whereas if you're a student creating a garment that's completely new actually people don't understand it so they can't actually find a way of emotionally relating to it do you think it's because you know if we look at like technology today and everybody lives in a virtual world. And there's a lot of mental health going on, I think, because of that. You know, over the last 10 years, mental health has just gone like through the roof, especially the pandemic. Everybody was isolated, all that sort of stuff. But do you think with the disconnect and, and people, you know, have we become disconnected from just going around to mums on Sunday and having a Sunday lunch? Do you know what I mean? You know, the basics of life, like going camping in a tent. I've just gone camping in a tent at Stonehenge with my kids. You know, um, and just teaching the kids the ground rules of freezing <laughs> yeah. in a tent at night and trying to keep warm. Um, you know, to make it a bit more real, because the kids these days are just, for me, growing up in this virtual world of uh, Instagram, of influencers that 
there's a I just think they're disconnected with the reality of life. And I think the young generation, like I would put my son in this bracket, sorry, Taylor, but that they haven't got a focus on really what they want to do anymore. Do you know, yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. They're, they're quite lazy. I think mm-hmm. the, the generation below me are still hard working, but the, one, the generation after that just mm-hmm. seemed that they're disconnected from... I would say the biggest disconnect is with our bodies. Right. I think we're so used to design being a visual thing. So if you think... Before lockdown, we got dressed for other people's. How people looked at us visually was how we wanted to be judged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we weren't thinking necessarily about how things made us feel in terms of the quality of fabric, about merino, about cashmere. Those things are about us, not about the viewer. And I think what lockdown did focused us back on our bodies because we weren't, apart from Zoom calls, and I remember this, dressing from the waist up. Yeah, yeah. And you were dressing for yourself, and so suddenly it became... What made you feel good? Mm-hmm. And I think particularly what we're going through emotionally, that also about comforting ourselves. And you can also see that in the rise of uh, athletic sportswear. And I think that relationship between us and nature mm. as individuals became really important. Rather than us dressing for other people, and our other people getting our value from other people's reacting to, to what we look. Because if you look at Instagram, that's all about our value system being put on other people's opinion on us. Yeah. And if I don't get enough likes, that endorphin rush, then my my personal sense of self isn't good. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly bad, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. that's been monetized by an uh, algorithm system is always going to be designed to make you feel unhappy because you will engage more with those apps because you want to become happier. Yeah. And you're never going to win that. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that's the disconnect is with our bodies. And I think we've seen that reconnect a bit, but we've also seen us go straight back in the last two years to, oh, actually, it's all about creating imagery and filters. Yeah. I mean, I was looking at a filter yesterday and I was thinking, how can you live in a world where constantly your self-image through photography is, is perfected? Mm-hmm. You know, you were talking earlier about working in the 80s well, or the 90s someone to perfect whichever photo they took of you would take days yeah it would yeah it rather than it's an instant thing you're not even aware that that process is happening and and that added value because you know they would take a picture in the 90s and you wouldn't see them for six months because they'd be on you know polaroid uh or a little um i can't can't remember what they're called now like the little film strips negatives yeah 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 and then um but it take months and months and months. So when yeah. that picture finally came out, it was like you were waiting for it. You couldn't wait to see it. It was in the shops. You went and bought the magazine. Yeah, yeah. You opened it. It was worth value. Mm-hmm. And but I think that humans have lost that. because I can take photographs now. I'm a professional photographer. And, you know, I can take photographs of models mm. and I'll send them to them and they'll send them back to me with a filter on. How bonkers is that? Mm. After you've just spent ages getting the lighting <laughs> right and getting right. The, so, people so you, in. You've got a beautiful girl, yeah, beautiful lady. You take a picture of her. She looks amazing. I'll do a bit, bits of edits with, you know, blemishes and, and this, that, and the other skin tones, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is, it's the tools of today. So that's what every photographer yeah. in the world does. And it's like, you'll send them to her and uh, she'll send them back edited with right. a filter on. But also the problem with that is the idea that what we're all trying, trying to achieve is some shared idea of what beauty is as this beauty is the only outcome you know we were talking earlier about mcqueen and mcqueen on one level was about beauty but it wasn't about beauty on another level it was about and i I think i always say this because we had a shared history working in the theater and we both thought and films that the theater could allow you to go through all sorts of emotions and all sorts of imagery not just fashion which only lets you have this idea of current beauty 
Yeah. And I think, you know, your role as a photographer and also when you were a model is actually there's all these other people that have all those skills, set designers, makeup, hair to create that image. And yeah. the idea that then the model would send that back with a filter yeah. on and say, well, actually, this is how I want to be You'd seen. Yeah. 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 That would never happen. You know, th- I mean, the way it used to be was a model was really a clothes horse and you didn't have any say, you know, you were told and briefed how to look, what to do when you were out there. But essentially, you're a clothes horse. And you wouldn't probably see the photos, maybe so, depending on the relationship yeah. you had with the photographer, until they were actually in a magazine yeah. or a yeah. shop window yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that's up to the photographer and the client. Yeah. Depending on what the imagery they want to put out and how you look and everything else. I mean, if you hated the photograph when it came out, tough, because yeah. the clothing looked great or the lighting was great yeah. or, you know, whatever, you would never be able to change it. Yeah, it's an, I always think it's an interesting job and model. It's a. Well, luckily, it's a job, job I've never been asked to do, but I think it's going to be quite a passive job because other people are interpreting you and what you do and whether you have value or not. Yeah. There's not much you can do about that, is there? You know, when we do castings and it's yeah. go-see and there's 300 models, I think, well, how are we deciding which one out of these 300? And, you know, I think it takes a certain certain person that can adjust to that idea that quite a lot of your job is just about rejection, about yeah. stuff yeah. you can't do anything about. Whereas yeah. I think if you're a designer, you think, well, I'm get better my technical flats or I could do better fabrication. Yeah. Um, but I think if you can accept that, you can think, well, actually, I'm part of this process. Yeah. And I think maybe that's what's changed a lot in the last few years, that idea that those processes have changed. So those who has the power in those relationships has changed as well. It's interesting you say that because I think with the rejection, I had my first, um, I'd hate to talk about mental health all the time, but it is, it yeah, is yeah. a significant thing. But in, I was 22 and I had my first diagnosis with clinical depression. And that came from the modelling days. And I think with me, I'm only five foot eight. And at that time, probably like eight stone yeah, <laughs> with yeah. a six pack, you know, not like the keg of the, the good old days. Yeah, the good old days, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, when beauty was beauty, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I used to go to the castings with Dean Jean, Valentino, and you would literally get the most stunning men in the world. Like, yeah. you've never seen, I've, you know, the breathtaking. Like, yeah. You're like, wow. You know, yeah, look yeah. like they've been chiseled out of rock. And I would you know, go up with a portfolio, and they absolutely loved me. Yeah. You'd, but but like, at the time, did you think, I'm, I'm not going to get Why am job? I here? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. little old me from Manchester stood here with all this lot, all yeah. these American guys. I was like, oh, my God, you know, why am I here? But it was because I was different. You know, like Kate Moss was mm-hmm. different, you know. And, and I think these guys are so used to seeing everything all the same all the time. It's that difference that makes you stand out. It's just, it's homing in on we're different because of this and not following that trend. That relates to clothing, you know, and, and that really related to McQueen because I think what he did really well was connect the audience. Like when he did a show, he, in, you know, invoked or provoked, you know, provoked, is it invoked or promoted emotion from what he was doing? So whether that be like beautiful or whether that be like, oh my God, when people left that show, they left with an emotion with them. And I thought, wow, yeah. And, and I, without knowing that, every time I design something or put something on somebody, if they don't put it on and go, oh, wow, we've not done our job. Mm. And I suppose that comes down to that idea of emotional value because mm. I was lucky to be involved in about four or five of those shows. And beca- again, because our background was theatre, we knew the tricks with music and lighting, all the tricks you can do to get people in a heightened state that they're going to have an emotional reaction to something before they've even seen what it is you've designed and all those other things. Yeah. Um, and I think that lasts. And the other thing is you think some of those things he did 20 years ago, and they they still last because that emotion is still inherent within that 
presentation that work. Mm. And, I th- and I think fashion is that interesting thing. It's both disposable, but, you know, it's every six months, but it's also something that can last for decades mm-hmm. yeah. because it's so powerful. Well, I, I thought last night, I watched it again last night. Yeah. There's a recap because I knew Andrew was coming in and did a lot of reading on Andrew as well. And, and um, I just thought we should do that as a brand and get Andrew to do a, a cat show. Yeah, yeah. And, and, okay. and do an outrageous... Uh, uh, you know, fashion show, a production in Manchester, yeah, yeah that leaves people gobsmacked, right? Yeah, that we would throw like paint all over, yeah, yeah, our what, jackets uh, or you know. What, how, how does the process work? What do you do? First of all, is it is it is it is it the you know what the what the wearing and do you work along along with that? Is it the the way the model looks? Do you uh, how how does that process I, work? I think it's like any. Th- I think theatre is like church, isn't yeah. it? It's a shared communal experience. Okay, and. You can only there was a, a, a Craig Green show about five years ago that apparently the audience were weeping. Right, and you can look at the video online. You think it's a great show, but I can't understand why they had that emotional response in the room. And you think, well, you can't because it's the combination of those things in that space and those people coming together. Yeah, that has made that happen. And you can do all sorts of things. And McQueen used to do it with smell that you'd. Mm. you'd have candles you'd have all these other things all the senses basically yeah um the thing about not allowing people in the venue and people having to fight to get in so you're already your adrenaline's going creating a hype and that idea of what might be coming down the runway because that idea of you could see anything come down that runway um so you've already got people so sometimes you you've got the emotion because you're actually there you've got the emotion because you you love this brand and then a, a track will come on or something will happen that just triggers that emotion it's it's left right and center yeah. i mean the yeah. one that was really good is uh, christopher bale at burberry so we we were really lucky he used to invite students along to the show and his use of music yeah i always thought he really understood that Burberry is what Burberry is as a brand. In terms of a runway show, how you can use music to tap into people's emotional response. Mm. And so we we got to see Adele sing live when she was more or less at the beginning of her career in yeah. the room and there's only 400 of you. Yeah. And, and also it's unexpected. So suddenly someone like Adele just appears. So that's yes. suddenly... <gasps> yeah. um, the wow is there, and the, and then the goosebumps follow. I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, and I think, and then you're connecting that to what you're just seeing come down the runway and that emotion. And also, he was really good at doing things like it would suddenly rain indoors, yeah. or so again, theatrical tricks. production. Yeah. Um, but really, to get you to really put the clothes in a context that you're having an emotional response to. Mm. And if you think some of those shows were 15 years ago, and I can still feel that emotion now from yeah. from that moment of the show, and then that continues when you see those brands when they're suddenly in shops yeah. or in um, retail. Mm, do you yeah. think those days will come back with, you know, the retail days of, of not buying so much? Well, I mean, we're always going to buy, on, buy online, don't get me wrong, but I've noticed since the pandemic um, that people are enjoying coming back into stores and actually trying things on as opposed to buying online. You yeah, know? I think they're two different things. I think when we buy online, we're mainly looking at prices, aren't we? We've, we've got the ability to look at who's selling stuff and how much it is and what the service, you know, we're also thinking about how it might get delivered to us as well. So mm-hmm. quite a lot of brands now, fulfillment brands, actually, yeah. you know, like Amazon, it's about the fact that it will come to you that day or the next day. Mm. It's more important than the product. But what I think retail can do is what Savile Row does, which I think Savile Row is about a relationship between you and the tailor that lasts a lifetime it's your first suit when you leave school it's your 
or your uniform if you're going into the army it's your wedding it's your funeral yeah and actually although the outcome of that relationship is you're getting a suit what you're actually paying for and what you're having is that relationship with that tailor and cutter mm. throughout your life that's been there with all those moments in your life yeah you know that's something quite profound isn't it well, yeah. it's very different though these days because you know I, I, every time for 20 years i wore a suit unless i was out you know on track um but now everybody's in hoodies and tracksuit bottoms mm-hmm. so that must have massively impacted on the likes of savile row and tailoring as such yeah, but I think some people still want that relationship. I mean, the, I would yeah, say the course, reason yeah. I don't go to Savile Row is because I know it's not one suit you're buying, it's at least 20. Yeah. Because, it's about, again, it's about that relationship, isn't it? Because mm. if you get used to anything that's about quality, that's not just once. It's a, it's a kind of lifetime commitment. Yeah, I think I think the, the younger generation of, uh, you know, will change the world, I do, yeah. with sustainability. I think, you know, obviously with... with you know, I don't know whether it was my generation before messed it up or we, we messed it up as a generation, you know, with the internet and everything else came in and, you know, fast fashion buy-in. And, but I think slowly I've noticed, like, even the girls have started to change their um, their attitudes towards long fashion, let's say, and buying better. Um, because when I originally launched the brand, um, I just noticed that guys would normally stick to a brand once they liked to, liked to brand and they'd always sort of... It, very difficult to sort of sway them to go somewhere else because they get into the history of it. They get into the, the connection with the brand. And then, but women had such a disconnect to it with the fast fashion world. And, and my wife would buy, um, not naming any brands, but she'd buy something. And I'd say, why are you buying it from there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's 20 quid. And I went, yeah, exactly. I said, and she'd get it and she'd put it on and it wouldn't fit right. Wouldn't look anything like it did, you know, online. Yeah. And then instead of sending it back because it had cost you, I don't know, a fiver to send it or back. Or something else. It went in the bin. Yeah. So then we've got this massive issue with landfill. And I was saying, if you buy better, it will fit you better. Mm-hmm. You won't have to send it back and you'll you'll keep it a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that trend went on for quite a while. And then I think slowly that's starting to change. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think the difficulty is that we're in a system that is is trying to make us do that by a lot constantly. Mm. So it is trying to sell us a twenty pound product, isn't it? Yeah, and, and changing Rather. the seasons before we, we just before the we we came on the podcast, we were talking about um, one it, one it's uh, turnover for for us as a brand. Like we can't just with our products, you know, and the reach that we've got and where we're at with the brand, we can't we can't be banging things out every six months. Mm-hmm. You know, it took since the fire. It's taken us twelve months to get our product back to where it needs, and that's you know, it's taken us eight months to make the fabric and get it you know coloured and sent over to the manufacturers and manufactured and then over here. Um, and we were talking about the seasons and what I would try to do with the brand is make it less seasonal. So we're now doing like a- AW23, for instance, but we've already started dropping that next month. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like spring, summer and autumn, winter. And how, how do we get, how do we break that that cycle of seasonal you know, cl- clothing and se- seasons because there's so much waste. There must be so much waste. Is it because everybody's now so used to like January sales? And and I think a lot of the bigger retailers are using that to their advantage. So they're pushing. Let's say they're pushing our prices. To, we went to the Paris shows, and they were like, "That's too. That's too cheap. You need to sell that at fifteen hundred. And I was like, "No, it's at nine fifty, because their strategy is basically sell it fifteen hundred. The hardcore fans would buy that at maybe. Five percent of of everybody, 
And then in January, slash it straight away to 30%. So the thinking getting, they're getting more value for money. Then it goes to 50% and then it goes to 70%. And that is basically their business model. So coming into starting a new business and a new brand in that world is very difficult to get your head around. And, yeah. and we've not had a great start with the pandemic and the fire, everything else that's gone on. But it's sort of in my mind, do we really want to go into retail or do we really want to stay independent? Yeah, I think it's difficult because that systems, you know, I think it's interesting, April 2020 when we had lockdown and, you know, everyone said, oh, the fashion industry is going to change and this is what we suddenly need because supply chains were broken across the world so, you know, things weren't getting manufactured or product wasn't getting shopped, shops were shut. It's all gone back to normal. Yeah. The shows, the journalists that you said, I'm never going back to the shows, they're still in Paris this week, they've been to Milan. None of that's changed. And I always say, well, if all of that, shutting down the world that's never happened before, yeah. if that doesn't change this system, then how do you change that system? And I, I think what's happened over the last 40 years, I think the industry has realised through the diffusion collection, you know, from design of fashion, particularly in menswear from the 70s and 80s onwards, then to the diffusions in the 90s, this idea that everyone can have fashion, it gets to a point you've got to say, well, no, actually... Fashion isn't for everyone. Fashion is an elitist system and you do not have a right to have fashion. You should have a right to have good quality clothing that's made from really good materials that lasts. Yeah. But what the industry's done is told you that things made out of rubbish fabrics have value because they've got fashion rather than they're made from really good fabrics and made to last, mm. which is why we've ended up with fast fashion that's disposable that people buy Maybe wear once, maybe not even wear and throw away because it has no intrinsic value as an object. It's only value as its fashionability. Mm. Um, so I think somehow that system will break eventually because it will get to a point where that is completely unsustainable. Yeah. Um, and then it'll be interesting. I, I think the industry is going to go in two ways that we're going to have much better quality clothing for all of us as the masses. And I, you know, I'm saying some of the day, most of the time I'm wearing clothing, I'm not wearing fashion. Yep. And you're going to have very high-end product that's about craft and make and cut, and that's maybe where the fashion will be part of that. How do you think the word fashion's changed then? Because fashion, that I would know it, like you would know it, um, has now, I think, changed with the way we dress what, that's fashion today. What's fashionable today was, you know, it's not clothing, it's fashion. Yeah, I suppose it's how the word curators changed, do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like Supreme Hoodies are fashion Yeah, these days. Well, or even you could say Balenciaga is a sportswear brand now. Yeah. You, know, you know, recently when they said, oh, we're going back to our roots, I thought, well, they don't mean they're going back to 1950s couture, <laughs> are they? <laughs> well, wherever they're going. Yeah. And I think there's a danger. You know, Balenciaga are a re really good case. You can only go down that route so far, and then what have you got rid of in terms of what you are as a brand? And where do you take that consumer next? Because that consumer will move away from you. Um, so I think it also needs brands to realise you. if you want to survive a long time, you've got to be really clear of who you are, who your customers are and aren't, yep. and what sort of products you should be producing, rather than constantly chasing whatever the latest thing is. Um, is Mike coming in then? Or like Because um, anybody that doesn't know Mike has listened to um, episode three. Mike is my creative director um, and also one of the designers for 7L. So he's um, obviously perfect to speak to uh, Andrew. He has a few questions. that He's got a whole list in front of him, Andrew. Look at that. 
Oh, wow, <laughs> it's like an essay. Yeah, due so, diligence has been. So done. Le- we'll let you two speak. Uh, uh, design speak. Yeah, absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, ask you a few questions. Um, first thing I wanted to touch on was uh, recently. I've also started to lecture at a university. I've been lecturing at Salford, um, and what I found is this beauty in the naivety of youth. Um, <laughs> they can con- create. And conceptualise amazing concepts and tangible designs, but bridging that gap between academic institutions and the real life inner workings of a business in the fashion industry, there seems to be uh, a bit of a disconnect. Um, what would you, well, what would your approach be in improving this transition? Yeah, there is a disconnect. Uh, you know, again, it seems like I'm always going back to the archive, but uh, the archive's been really useful for that. And I think why it's been useful, I think. If you're looking at a student's work, that work is so personal to them. Sometimes it's got it's got very emotive subject matter that they might be drawing on in terms of the design. So that's another layer of um, emotion. So it's very hard to have a, a critique of that work without it feeling like a, being a personal critique of you as a person. So to be separated from the work and yourself. And I think what the work, the archive does, it enables us to critique other people's work in a safe space where we can be looking at work by Comte de Garçon, Alexander McQueen, um, Carol Christian Pohl, and say, oh, look how they resolved this. Oh, actually, that isn't very good, is it? Do you know what I mean? So to be able to look at other people's work and say, that could have been better, what if they'd done this? Or why have they done that? Or actually, that thing you've designed as a student, would it be good if you did what they did? I think enables them to see their work alongside that work and see its strengths, but also see maybe the weaknesses of some of those people that previously they'd never actually looked at the objects, the garments, to understand how they've resolved them. Because I think the very easy thing is to design something on paper. The very hard thing is to make that into a saleable, retailable garment at a price point that means a business will be successful. And that's the hard challenge, isn't it? And I think by looking at other people's work, that's a, a softer way of doing it rather than saying, well, you've designed this and actually this won't work because, um, which I think can be quite a negative way of thinking about the work. And um, during that process, obviously, there's a lot of students that like to express themselves creatively and they do that through the, the platform of storytelling. At 7L, uh, storytelling is something that is prevalent in all of our past, present and future collections. Um, during your time working in theatre and developing stages, sets, scenery, did it give you a perspective of storytelling and did you incorporate this transferable skill into the fashion industry afterwards and on the runways? Yeah, I suppose working in the theatre, I did loads of weird work because it's sort of freelance for the Royal Shakespeare Company, so on the Plantagenets, but also Clockwork Orange, which was U2, I think. The weirdly working there, you never get to see any of the productions because by the time you finish the bit you're doing, you're so over it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. You you know the mechanics. It's a bit like working on a on a fashion show. I think I know how those work, those things. So actually, they're not necessarily enjoyable. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you realise how you can get people to connect with your work. I guess through various ways of thinking about how you can draw them in, and I think storytelling is a really key one. You know, how will people react to your your garments, your product, your brand. And I suppose one of the things I say to students is garments are just a manifestation of you as a brand, but they're not the brand. They're just one thing, and it could be a perfume, a car, it could be a pinball table in the case of Supreme. So what is it you stand for or you want people to feel when they think about 
what you're doing as, as, as your work. Um, and also, I think the interesting thing I've tried to do, but not very successfully, is stop young designers having eponymous brands, so that, you know, naming the brand after them. Um, and it was a journalist that came in and said, you know, Hedy Slimane's been really good because every brand he goes to is Hedy Slimane, but there's never been a Hedy Slimane. But Celine is Hedy Slimane, do you know what I mean? And I think that idea of thinking you get to control who you are as a person rather than suddenly you become this thing that you can buy in a shop with your name on which is kind of really odd and weird and especially then when you suddenly become you know 20 percent of you as a person's owned by a japanese backer or what mm. um so i think that interesting point about who you are as an individual and how that can be separated from your work i think it's quite a, a key thing i like to get students to understand because otherwise that storytelling becomes too meshed up with who they are um, and that's very hard when you go out into the world and then people are criticising your brand or fashion show, but because it's got your name, you feel they're criticising you. Yeah. Um, when did you have the confidence as a youngster, let's say, to realise that um, by storytelling and connecting you know, your experiences through life into design, when did you feel the confidence to start doing that? Or does it just naturally, did it just naturally happen for you? I suppose it's that thing, seeing clothes, seeing how we dress, what we wear, as a really good vehicle for those sorts of narratives. Because it's one of those things we intuitively respond to and read, a bit like music. No one has to teach you to have a response to music, you just have it. Yeah. And you don't necessarily feel you're at a disadvantage because you haven't got this prior knowledge. It's very uh, immediate. And I think that's the same with clothes, isn't it? You see something, you... You have an immediate reaction to it. You like it, you hate it, you think it's stylish. And so therefore it's a very uh, powerful tool to connect with people. So how, how do you take, sorry Mike to jump in, but I'm just good. intrigued on how, how they take, so when we see high fashion pieces on the, on the catwalk and um, you think, oh my God, you'd never wear that. How did they take those magpie pieces, let's say, and turn them into commercial garments to actually put in the store? Who makes that decision? Is that... Would that be the head designer or is that a team of people? That then I mean, it used to be, you know, those early days with McQueen, it was very strategic, do you know what I mean? It's, he used to sell, in the very early days, he used to sell in a shop called Pelicano in uh, old uh, South Moulton Street. Right. And the majority of the customer there was women 70 plus. And they would buy his dresses, which were silk chiffon layered, very sort of yoji maybe. Yep. And have no idea who Alexander McQueen on the runway causing havoc was. Do you know what I mean? But it was the fact that he understood really good cut material and construction. That was enough for that consumer. They didn't need to see what those things might be once they're styled up on a runway. And I think he really understood, again, from that theatre background, actually you could, through use of styling, music, all of that, show you something that you think, oh my God, that's really extreme. And then you could un it and think actually it's not at all but it was like the one where Kate Moss wore as a hologram yeah I mean that was stunning as a hologram I mean the whole idea of that was just like mind-blowing at the time you know as well but how would you take a garment like that and make it commercial like that you'd wear it in the street I or, suppose or wouldn't you is it going to be a one-off type piece well, no, I think that was a very heavy layer tool garment in silk but there's, there would have been a much smaller version that could have been wearable um that could be produced so I think it's it's thinking what the differences are in terms of the audience and the use um, and I think he really understood that. I think those people that understand how to get people's attention, yeah, uh, and yeah. then how to then how does that become a product someone wants to wear? And there's a connection between both those garments, so that when other people see them, they can make that connection. And is there still shows like that that go on these days? I mean, I know the 
that are a lot more like just walk. Like the, all the models seem really stiff these days, and just walk as if the there's no personality to them and stuff like that. It, it, is it, has it changed massively from the nineties now? Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting thing. I went to see a show in London Fashion Week that was uh, Metaverse. It was first show in London that was in real life and in Metaverse. It was very confusing because I was thinking, <laughs> am I meant to be here or not here? Is it physical <laughs> yeah, as well? Yeah. Um, but when I went to it, uh, what intrigued me, there were, I guess what you'd call old school models yeah. in front of an audience, but also someone off that area in a green screen suit that was appearing in that space digitally on all the monitors. So you were seeing two people, but there was only one person. But also for me, it really blurred that line of where was the audience, where yeah. was the uh, performer or the model. And I suppose what then was interesting for me is the experience, this mm. experience in the room, which we were talking about earlier, or is it the experience that is being captured digitally at home, which is the the... the better experience or more authentic because i think we're always kept you know fashion's always about you know that moment and i was like where is this moment and i don't know what the answer was but i thought it was a really interesting way of thinking well like that that will still evolve and i think we're used to thinking fashion shows don't evolve but if you look at fashion shows from the 80s the photographers used to stand along the length of the runway not at the end and at some point that must have changed. It was about that long view, not the side view. Yep. And I think we're going through that process now about where the digital is and who the audience is. And, and you know, I knew this from when I used to go to the Burberry shows. The audience for that Burberry show was the online audience at home. It wasn't us in that audience space. We, I was, were, I we were dressing in some respects. Yeah. I suppose it was the side view because they wanted to capture the people that were there watching the shows as well. Yeah. You know, he was sat there and... <laughs> and I know. used to always think as well, because they used to have tracking cameras along the runway, I thought, there will be someone at Burberry also looking about who's turned up or not turned up. And actually, do you know what I mean? Because yeah, totally. So, yeah. so I think it's a really interesting thing how those shows have become far more valuable for all sorts of reasons than if you think in the 50s, they are just for the buyers. You know, we were saying last week, I'm not sure if I saw a single buyer at London Fashion Week, but it used to be 50-50 press and buyers. Yep. Wow. That's not where those people are engaging with the garments. Um, I'm also glad that you touched on the digital interaction that is prevalent at the moment in, in the fashion industry. Uh, you mentioned that there was a period in time where um, you and the students couldn't physically interact with the products that were on the runway. Um, but now we're in this digital age of information, technology and social media and we see an emergence of digital designers and also artificial intelligence conjuring these never-before-seen bodies of work. Um, do you think this increases the customer's expectation of quality product and innovation, which in turn makes it difficult for the seamstress to meet this new level of expectation? Or do you think it presents a welcome challenge that pushes the boundaries of fashion? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I, I mean, I think there's an interesting thing, you know, we've been looking at AI the last few months and thinking what is the role of the designer in that if if the AI can predict the cell through the colour range, the material, you know, if fa if fashion, the difference between clothing and fashion, if fashion is about presenting you with something that you intuitively respond to in an emotive way that you have to have at a maybe a more expensive price than you would normally pay, then those algorithms will be able to do that better than we will be as designers because, you know, Historically, that's what we'd be able to say. Is say, you know, two years from now, we'll all be wearing raspberry and a wool. Mm. And we would, that's who you'd speak to. We'd be the ones that would be doing that. Now that can be 
predicted by AI. That's going to be such a powerful tool for good and bad. But then you come back to the product, and I think the product is about the quality. You know, when I was looking at that overshirt just now, and I was going, oh, that amazing bit of stitching inside and the finish yeah, exactly. yeah. is about the physical reality of that garment. So I can look at that as an image, but actually when I see it physically, I intrinsically know how well made that is. Are you going to, is that something that the, I don't like the curriculum will, will cover between the interface between being a designer and holding garments to actually putting that into artificial intelligence and 3D design? Because obviously from that there'll be a prototype made, but then the designer's going to have to understand how to interpret that into the, into the uh, software that they're using, you know, and if they, if they like, well, it needs to do this, but I've no idea how to do that on, on the computer. Do you know what I mean? There, there must be, is that something that the university is looking at? Yeah, well, I also think there's that thing about you can design stuff in CAD and AI. It don't work, yeah. That looks really good, but actually, you know, it won't actually physically work or it will do these other things or that it would just be far too expensive. Yeah. So I think that ability, again, it comes back to the how much design thing um, is the important decision. And I also think as that gets smarter with AI, I kind of think it's a very Japanese way of looking at design, actually the value in craft and mistakes and the hand yeah. being present. So that ability to say imperfection suddenly has a value that maybe we haven't thought before, um, which might be things that are hand-dyed uh, or handmade as well as machine-made. So that that human relationship, I think, to those objects we create as things become yeah. too perfect. Is it just an involvement of, like, from paper and pencil to, like, CAD? And then from CAD now, we're going... So if we would make a tech pack and we'd draw it on CAD, uh, Illustrator, whatever, it, uh, is this next stage just an involvement like it was from pencil and paper to, to now from, like... Illustrator to artificial intelligence, three D design, and then body mapping because we've all be, we've all also been asked as a, as a brand to look at body mapping. So when you would have a luxury store, you'd go in, you'd everything would be black or everything would be white, and you'd say, "I'd love that, but to be in yellow, you know." And you go into a booth, it body maps you, it fits the garments to you, so you can actually see them on a screen, on a touchpad, iPad, blah blah blah. You could then order it, and within two weeks, it del- delivers to your door. You know, we've been looking at yeah. doing that with um, a factory in Vietnam, which is, I mean, you know, and you think, but I always think then, well, how is that going to actually physically work? Uh, because the amount of returns that we'll have um, globally with artificial intelligence and that, that doing it, it's going to be a massive learning curve, surely. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's what people actually want. I think right. there's an idea that that's what people want. Yeah. Again, it's interesting. That's what I'm saying, yeah. It's like we, we're always going back to the past, aren't we? Because that's what we really want. But we're, as humans, our job here as hu- as a human race is always to make things better. We can't just settle with, well, that worked, so let's just leave that the way it is because we're a, a race that just has to improve things all the time, whether that's to destruction <laughs> and then we decide actually the old way was the best way or whether we're just going to, like the pandemic you mentioned before, like we all went back to this really nice way of living, of doing quiz games on uh, Zoom of actually talking to family. People were saying there's dolphins swimming again in certain areas. The birds were back out. We'd seen m- more wildlife than ever. The air yeah. was cleaner. And I always said to my wife, as soon as we kick off again, it's going to go right back to square one. Because as, you, as a race and where we're at with our own evolution, we're just engineered like that. 
I suppose the interesting, I've been looking at a lot of chat GTP AI recently, and I find it interesting to use it to helping to write something for a friend, a sort of quote, and then it wrote something that was so naff. Half of it was really good, and then I said, this is also what it's saying. And he was like, oh, my God, that's awful. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but from a selling point of view, this is actually definitely the language of engaging someone on a selling point of view, but aesthetically we're saying, oh, God, you just don't want to talk to people reusing this language. And I, su I suppose it's thinking about why we set the archive up. One of the reasons we did, we thought, well, people use archives a lot for research, and initially what we were going to do was have these archetypal garments, whatever they were, and create patterns digitally. So actually a designer could come from a brand and we could just send you that digital pattern, yeah. you know, in the tech pack. Yep. Then we realised that isn't how the archive was being used. People weren't just copying things. They were using it for all sorts of reasons. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's us misunderstanding people's processes because those processes are hidden. So some designers were purposely borrowing stuff to say to the team, this isn't the direction we're going and we don't want to be looking at these things. Um, some were using all lots of different reasons and I think it made me realise we cannot overguess what it is that people but that, want. Yeah, that's the human process though, isn't it? That's and I think like human... You can't take that human element away from, even if artificial intelligence comes in, it's it's artificial, it's only what that thing's been programmed to think about, not the human ingenuity of and creativity of a human. I suppose the danger, <laughs> dangerous, I was speaking to Lorenzo Osti and saying, what does it, all of this makes me think, what does it mean to be human? I think there's very profound questions about who we are, what our values are. Suddenly, if, if we've got AI that can do all those things you know, hey, I can write better than I can write now. So actually, what is the value I bring to any writing I do? And I hope it's my experience, maybe. Mm. But I'm lucky because I'm older. I've had those experiences. What, but what do you bring to that if you're only 20? So I think it's an interesting thing because I think we're constantly in this push-pull against technology and craft. And I think in education, I'm always surprised by people talking about it. And I always feel they're five years behind where we are. So they're always saying digital when we've, finished doing digital and we've gone back to craft or the same craft when we're now going back to digital yeah um and i think there'll be just a natural push against it yeah it's almost seems like they'll, they'll, they'll be in the future there'll be uh robots um dressing us uh taking us around in cars us four will be stood with protest signs at the end of the road saying no you know we want our independence and everybody will be dressed the same apart from us we'll be like in in our own gear you know uh screaming for creativity and let's go back to the way the humans were it almost feels like that's the way we're going like because the hum the robots will make everything so efficient that they'll take out that creativity of stuff and it'll be mass produced and it'll be yeah. done by humans and this is the most efficient way of doing it because of sustainability and blah 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 and we just fall into that trap. We're just told what to do. Like at the pandemic, we were told what to do. And everybody was like, we're not doing that, but we all did it. You know, you had to go and get your injection and you had to go and get your boot. You know, you know what I mean? It yeah. sort of split a lot of the world at I, that point. I, I suppose the really good thing about that pandemic, one of the things we did, I don't know whether you saw this, we collected face masks. Yeah, I saw that, yes. Yeah. An archive of face masks. And what was really... The involvement of them so fast, yeah. It was insane that they became this altruistic thing that people were producing for free at the very beginning in April 2020. To about July, Huntsman and Savile Row were producing one for £30. And I remember saying, should we really spend £30 on a cotton shirt and face mask? Which did. And by September, Louis Vuitton had one that was £350 that was cotton. And I was thinking, well, the industry cannot help but do what the industry does yeah. and turn this into a moment of 
of product conceptualization, realization, and adding on this extra value because it's Louis Vuitton. And I, I suppose that was a real learning moment, which that year began for me in being very positive. And by the end, actually, I found it really, really depressing. Yeah. Because what I thought was everyone coming together to do things for the better good, you realized was actually no, just a chance for people to exploit people. Yeah. Just, I, I also think it's just like for young designers, it's just, fall, you know, they, they could just fall into that trap of that's just the way it is, following the trend. Or, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sometimes the best things to do nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's like the pizza. That's a great analogy of using the tomato base and make just a great base. You know, some, sometimes less is more as well. But I think that they can all almost fall into that trap of, well, this is the way it is. But We've got to improve things all the time. But the other thing that came out of that I thought was, uh, again, and this is because we're humans, is we all had to wear a garment that we'd never really worn before, a face mask. And we all, because we were told we had to wear it, we all had to find, negotiate our own way of wearing that object. And so they became about protest. We've got a really early one that's in a uh, digital knit that says scum on the front of it. And I'm thinking, or one from New and Lingwood, which is skull and crossbones. So at the time, everyone thought they were going to die. And he was thinking, it's menswear. We want to embrace that death. Rather than hide it, we're going to actually celebrate it in a weird, perverse way. Yeah. And so I think whatever happens with AI, we'll find a way of subverting that in a, in a way in terms of our dress because I think we've always done that. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I feel like the pursuit of trying to find identity and creativity in a garment, but when you get given something blank that's a face mask and we spoke about the difference between purpose of a garment rather than the aesthetic of a garment um, takes away that identity as well. But um, I've always done a lot of research into recombinant innovation and like uh, cross-industry design. So, for example, like a handled bag being paired with a wheel formed the suitcase. Um, and then uh, like the structure of how peas form in a pod kind of like inspires the cigarette formation and packaging. But then the lid of the cigarette packaging inspiring aircraft doors and how they come open. Have you um, discovered over the years anything directly or indirectly that have influenced a fashion garment from a different industry. And I don't really mean like, you know, lines in architecture. I mean like different cuff closings or hood openings that you've been inspired by nature or... I don't know, but I suppose that thing, half the archive, and we find the language really hard because we call one half designer, but actually it's all, you know, I suppose it's marketed as a designer. That, that how those garments across those different sectors relate or not to each other. So we've got, uh, again, coming back to... Uh, COVID, we've got three PPE scrubs, one from Private White, one from uh, Barber and one from Burberry. And at the time, again, when we were collecting the masks, we were like, oh, these, are all, these are all going to be the same, so they're not really going to be worth collecting. Well, we'll collect them anyway. Well, they're all completely different. Wow. So the material's different, the cut's different. So some have got raglan sleeves, some have got set-in sleeves. And every single one, you know what the brand is. So without even wanting to brand it, they brand it in terms of their cut and make and design. And I suppose I suppose what I'm really intrigued with, with all those garments we've got is, again, that how little design can you have and how can you take that from one sector and put it into another sector? Um, and that probably also comes back to that storytelling, doesn't it? Because I think without realising it, you're drawing on all those other ideas of, Know, for example, the high-vis, we've got a Burberry high-vis jacket from Christopher Bailey's last collection. And when I saw that come down the runway, it was styled underneath a coat, I thought, that's not just a high-vis jacket, that's something they've resolved. And I, I quite like that idea of how do you resolve these architectural things, but in a way that is relevant to whoever you are or as a brand, mm -hmm. what's your version of. 
And I suppose that that's the bit within the archive I like is that how do you personalise the things that feel like they're ordinary or everyday? The, the masks are a, a great example, though, of getting something that's blank <coughs> and seeing the involvement of it so fast. You know, from, from, like you say, the 350 Louis Vuitton one to the basic free one and how quick that evolved and what you can do with the same sort of silhouette but change it. <laughs> well, and also our research showed us that actually masks were in fashion from 2017 onwards. So there's ones from Off-White, A Cold War. Uh, it was in, in a weird way. They'd become a fashion item before they became this medical item. Yeah. And then as soon as they became a medical item, we've got one from Boohoo that then got withdrawn because it was like, how dare you profit on this um, illness? Where in fact it was produced as a fashion item first and only ended up in, in that. Yeah. So I think for me it's also that is interesting about context and also... If you think about emotion, suddenly those garments became so loaded. I think they became so symbolic. It was, we used to say that people's irrational fear on the underground and their relationship to whether people had a mask on or not. Mm. I kept on saying, I wonder if this is going to change once we're told we don't have to wear them, whether they're going to become a flashpoint. And I think they are. For me, it's like the um, the yellow vests in, in France. Those those yellow vests that are just an ordinary garment you're carrying in the back of your car suddenly became changed through their use through protest and they can never go back to being a yellow vest again in France. Yeah. And I think that's the, the mask that became just a menswear stylistic thing in 2017 can never be viewed now except for this really problematic art object. Mm. Um, so like when we did our exhibition, I think we were far too early and I think people aren't ready to actually look back at those objects because they're too painful and too personal right you still think that absolutely so yep. when there was the spanish flu outbreak uh beginning of the 20th century as soon as that finished it's almost written out of history yep. because people didn't want to deal with what they've had to deal with you think what we what we all went through those things of not seeing relatives of some really people had to make some really hard decisions mm. and uh, that mask has become symbolic of all of that um and I don't think people are ready to deal with that. I think I think that first year or year and a half, we suddenly realised we thought everyone was doing everything for the best intention and, and then we realised our politicians were absolutely doing everything for their own best interests. But did it not put us all on the same level playing field? That's no, because you realised those people were having parties, breaking all the rules they set for everyone else. No, I mean, at, ho- at home, like, we all started phoning each other, we all started talking to each other, um, I haven't done that since the pandemic ended. Uh, and, and is it because we were all in the same position, we're all in the same boat, our anxiety levels massively dropped because we knew that our boss wasn't at work or, you know, do you I, know what I mean? It was all just... I, we sort I, of think we, I think we went on to that, you know, we've never really had a war, have we, in our lifetime? And mm. I, I feel it was very much that war thing that we were all drawing each other's strengths emotionally because we're all going through a shared experience. And again, when have we gone through a shared experience before as a country? Yeah. We, not in our lifetime. Mm. But then I think that became quite quickly problematic yeah. because it wasn't how we were told it was. Um, and then that's become very difficult for people. You know, I, I've got this in, in my own family about people can't have those conversations because they've dealt with those things differently and they found it very, very painful. Mm. Um, and people have lost relatives and all sorts of things have happened that they'd rather not um, look at anymore, I guess. Yeah, I think w- what we experienced was a lot of brands trying to commercialise something that was readily available and customise it. 
Um, and uh, speaking about this mass market and effect it has on branding and positioning and strategy and how you move forward. Um, I think it was about eight years ago now, I was a, a footwear developer at Puma uh, out of their headquarters in Herzl Ganawa and um, worked on a collaboration between Puma and MCQ. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, MCQ was founded in like 06 as a lower price diffusion of Alexander McQueen. Um, so I wanted to know what is your opinion on luxury brands like Alexander McQueen commercialising a uh, subsidiary label or product to mass market and the effect that then this has on the luxury brand that has taken decades to build? Yeah, I, sp- well, I suppose the good example I said earlier is Balenciaga. Yeah. You know, you can go down that route, but then where does that leave you when that route, you know, that market that you've tapped into, like McQueen tapped into, into trainers, it's great while that market is really flourishing, but there's a danger of what happens when that market isn't flourishing. Uh, and what what do you stand for as a brand? Um, because, you know, for any designer, I think you go for peaks and troughs. Do you mm. know what I mean? You're going to be hot, you're going to be fashionable, but then you're not going to be hot and fashionable. And I say that to my graduates that, it's great that you leave. There's always going to be interest because you're new. So, A, you're really easy for a journalist to write about because no one's written about you before. But it also means in two years' time, you're not going to be new. There'll be someone else and no one's going to write about you. So you have to be really clear of what your brand stands for and who you want to engage and take those people on that journey with you over that whole period. And you might do things that you think are an easy win and good money, but if that alienates your core customer or messed up your brand and I think there's a real danger with all those you know we've seen them endless collabs we used to joke with students we used to do a collab project and said obviously you wouldn't put Tom Ford with Warehouse well now you could couldn't you do you know what I mean any brand could be with any other brand the more absurd the better yeah but for what benefit how does that benefit because if then if it's not based on a natural affinity then it becomes meaningless I mean for for us, uh, I love collaborations. We don't do enough because it helps us get into, you know, another customer base or like the collaboration with Nanga, um, you know, Manchester and uh, Tokyo working together, uh, the UK and Japan. Uh, and then I love all that story. And um, it benefits us because obviously we open the brand uh, to a further field of, of Japan. You know, so, so for me, that's a proper collaboration. And, and when you design it together... We've designed it. They're making it again. That's a, a proper collab type of thing, and then you're selling it together. But we we've had, like you say, brands that um, have come in for a collab, but have been completely meaningless. And it's like, well, what's the message? Yeah, we're trying to do here. It doesn't benefit us or them. Or yeah. So I've seen a lot of clubs over the years, and just thought, why are they doing that? One actually was North Face and Gucci, and then now I think it's the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I look at the, the photography when it first came out and thought, what are they doing? I actually take inspiration from that now. You know, I'm looking at it now and looking back at it and going, wow, actually, that was really good. And I suppose one I, the ones I sort of suggest to students is actually about manufacturing. You're coming about that saying, why don't you speak to John Smedley? Because actually I know what they're going to do is then understand how that product's produced. Yeah. And what little they need to bring to that product or Macintosh or, or anyone that's about production and, and manufacturing and thinking, what could I bring as a designer? And then hopefully those d- young designers realise they're a small part of that. It's not about them. It's about that heritage and how do you modernise some of that heritage to a different audience. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you once, didn't you do your own brand? You did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was in, was it 99? Was it? Yeah. Uh, no, that was... 97. Um, 
I started in 97. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. some. Go on, talk us through <laughs> that then. Talk <laughs> us through what happened. Well, for that. those people that are, uh, this is pre-digital, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it st- astounds me now that you could do a fashion show. You sent out invites by post. Yeah. I've no idea where we sent them to. Um, and then you just expected people to turn up. You had don't, no idea. Don't you think there, there's something in that by post? Don't you think it's more personal? Yeah, but it's a lot. I, I suppose it's interesting. It's a lot. If we did it again today, it'd be, it's more personal to get. Oh, it's more personal, but post. it's also, you couldn't do it today because what was interesting, you'd send those invites out and you'd have no idea whether those people would come or not. Yeah. And also they had no idea who you were. So I remember the first show, I just told them I was a runner helping backstage because I didn't want to deal with anyone that wanted to find me. Was it Emma? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but they might be asking for money for the lighting or something. Do you know what I mean? So uh, it allowed you to have a certain distance, I think, again. Yeah. Which I thought was important. And also because I was designing very much a theatrical experience. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first show I did, I had a model pull open her dress at the end of the show and all these flies fell out of her dress. And someone's got this photograph of the models backstage, one of them throwing up. It's that horrific. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, I suppose it wasn't the aim, but I suppose it comes back to the Queen thing. You want people to have a reaction. If, you're, if you've made someone go all the way around the world or even just across London, yeah, you want them to have some sort of emotional reaction. And that doesn't have to be necessarily seen as a positive reaction. It could be yeah. horrified, shocked. It could be anything, but it's yeah. a reaction. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that was that was that part of it was fun. Controversy so sells. <laughs> Where did you get the flies from? <laughs> yeah. Nigel's in the background. Where did you get the flies from? Well, that's a really interesting. With the blue bottles. What type of flies were well, they? Well, we tried to breed our own flies by buying maggots from a fishing shop. <laughs> oh, this is actually a thing. Oh my god. Oh yes. Have you archived these? Are these we, photographed? We, then we thought. I didn't know how you turned maggots into flies then we thought they needed to have warmth so we put them by the ironing board in the studio <laughs> by the iron <laughs> then we thought do you need to give them food so we were putting bits of sausage in that oh, i don't know brilliant. what we were thinking and remember pre-internet pre- <laughs> there was nowhere to look up how yeah, of course yeah turn flies into yeah um maggots into flies and then eventually it got to about four days before the show and i thought this isn't going to work so we had to speak to someone we knew that was this uh and this sounds like... Um, Get the yellow pages out. Yeah, this sounds like um, a comedy thing. But we knew someone that knew someone like one of those star pets that hire animals yeah. that provided flies to Damien Hurst. <laughs> and that he could provide a flies that he told us were clean flies, whatever that was. And that <laughs> he would put them in <laughs> the dress clean. backstage. And actually, it was just a great big box, crisp box that holds four, 36 packets of crisps full of flies and the way of putting the flies the dress had two layers so there was a layer the model wore then an outer layer and he just had a car vacuum a little handheld one and a pair of tights over the end and he sucked all the flies up (laughs) and then he put it on reverse (laughs) and shot shot all the flies up into the dress so in a way you can see why one of the models was sick This is a short film. We're going to have to do this now. We're going to have to do a little short film on this. Of Han- Andrew Grove's got flies That's up it. the dress. Yeah, that's an amazing story. I love that. Brilliant. That's so funny. <laughs> and when you're trying to do a show, you know, show backstage is stressful enough, isn't it? Without yeah. models throwing up. Having to think now all the flies, because obviously the flies were going everywhere. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Cl- clean flies. 
apparently clean. The, apparently the clean. Don't worry, they're all clean flies. Yeah. yeah. So, so in the video, you can see as the show begins, you can see one or two flies, and there's, there's more and more, and you've no idea why there's flies everywhere. What a great story. <laughs> <laughs> Right, what a brilliant way to wrap up uh, part one of this interview with Professor Andrew Groves. Uh, Coming up very soon, uh, we will release episode two where we'll delve deeper into the Westminster archives. Thanks for listening.